Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Stephanie Marcasano, founder and president of the Harris Project, the only national nonprofit focused on the prevention and treatment of co-occurring disorders. We're going to call that COD in the show in teens and young adults. The Harris Project is named in honor of Stephanie's son, Harris, who had been diagnosed with COD and died at the age of 19 of an accidental overdose. The Harris Project started in 2013 at Stephanie's Kitchen Table. It empowers youth to make positive decisions through an understanding of the paths to substance misuse and addiction, such as mental health challenges, sports injuries, and even wisdom tooth removal. The project also supports the creation of best practices in early identification and interventions. The Harris Project Co-Occurring Disorders Awareness Movement is a youth-led effort to create a community culture built on caring and compassion. We're excited to have Stephanie with us on the show today as we discuss the Harris Project and the work they're doing to raise COD awareness. Stephanie, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to have you here. You know, Stephanie, as we start out our show today, I'd love you to share with us your story, if you would, that led to the creation of the Harris Project and the inspiration behind your work in creating COD awareness. So it's interesting. I never know quite where to begin, but I think I'm going to start with me. I'm an attorney by training. I'm a former PTA president and school board member, mom of two children, intact family, high achieving family. And when my son was three years old, he was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. He began struggling from the time he was little. We were seeking interventions. He was getting help and support right out of the gate. By the time he got to seventh grade, his challenges became more significant. His mental health was really interfering with how he was doing day to day. Then by eighth grade, I was on the school board in my community. And as that school year progressed, his behaviors were becoming more and more unpredictable. My husband and I were really concerned about his well-being. He was getting into trouble a lot. People in our community thought he was acting out because I was important. My husband and I thought there was something bigger going on. He was seeing a, a therapist. And we went to what would be the last appointment with that therapist, where he told us that Harris had become more than he could manage. Mm-hmm. And that, by the way, he was smoking marijuana. He thought he was just experimenting, but he thought he might have a problem. By that point, we pulled Harris out of our school district. We homeschooled him for the ends of eighth grade. We had him fully evaluated. He picked up the ADHD diagnosis as well. He went on medication for the first time and started doing really well. He was, you know, a soccer player from the time he was little. He had stopped playing sports because the anxiety disorder was so bad. He went back to doing all of that. He was all league. He was all section. We were living like that typical suburban life. Right. He was doing so well that he said, you know, I don't need to talk to a therapist anymore. The medication is working great. And we're like, great. This is like rear view mirror. And 11th grade came and ACTs and SATs and stress and pressure. And the anxiety disorder came back with a vengeance and it overwhelmed the medication. And he really didn't want to tell anybody because we had lived through a trauma collectively when he was in eighth grade. My kids are best friends. It was really hard for us. He went to a party in our town. Prescription pills were available. 
he took pills. And that's when I could say for our family, the game was over. That had mm. completely numbed him out. And within a year and a half before he died, two short-term substance use programs, four inpatient residential substance use treatment programs, and one short-term mental health program. Each and every one of those programs said, Harris has this thing called co-occurring disorders. Each mm. one said they treated co-occurring disorders. And so when Harris died on October 23rd, 2013, my goal was to figure out how within a year and a half of entering that first program, he was gone. You know, I didn't want people to make donations other places. I figured I needed to understand from prevention, through treatment, through recovery, where the system had gone so horribly wrong for us. Wow, you exhausted just about everything you possibly could have done. You guys were yeah. attentive to it. You had some success in it. And then just got a, it got out of hand, didn't it? But it wasn't for the lack of trying. You did so many things. I, I want to come back to the experience of trying to pursue those treatment programs that you were desperately looking to help Harris with. But I want to go back over something as we start today. You talk about sure. co-occurring disorders. And I'd like to define that at the very beginning of our show. Define for our listeners what constitutes a COD diagnosis. Absolutely. So they may have heard of it as dual diagnosis, coexisting yeah. conditions, but the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, right around the time Harris died, a little bit before, defined it as co-occurring disorders, the combination of one or more mental health challenges and substance misuse and addiction. When you think about, you know, how do you get it? Okay, I understand that conceptually, but what does that mean? Well, people with anxiety disorders, ADHD, depression, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, the majority of those are using substances to self-medicate. So the largest pool of people with co-occurring disorders have an emerging or an existing mental health disorder. For our young people, 22% of our young people in this country have a mental health disorder with severe impact. So knowing that self-medication is a real possibility for them is something that we really work to do. Then you have kind of that middle section. You have, you know, a predisposition to both a mental health disorder and a substance use disorder. Now, I'm also that presenter that presents in an auditorium with a thousand young people. And by this point, you know, they've learned a little about Harris and they're kind of interested in this conceptually, but they think, well, I'm not part of that 22% with a mental health disorder. I can help my friends, but at least she's not speaking to me. Mm -hmm. The final category of co-occurring disorders is really where this impacts everyone. We say that our young people, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25, but we don't really say what that means. It means that anytime you ingest a substance, marijuana, alcohol, you're vaping, you're even taking legal prescription medications for a sports injury, you run the risk of changing your brain's chemistry, developing a mental health disorder and substance use disorder that way. So you can get co-occurring disorders even if you weren't on track to. And so our vision is that knowledge is power. So much of the time is spent on the other end, on the overdose, on the suicide, and not really looking at this through an empowered prevention lens that, yes. you know, that's really one of the places that we've found a lot of success and kind of the silver lining to see that light bulb go off for yeah. young people and parents and communities around what this actually is. That's really helpful. You know, as you're talking about the COD disorders, we know that about 70 plus percent of those misusing substances also have a mental health challenge. And, and, and it makes sense. I mean, just it just makes sense. You're, 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 you're struggling with something. There's something underlying. You're trying to minimize, you know, when, when we use, we're not feeling. 
Right. And we're trying to mask those feelings. We're trying to cope with those feelings. And oftentimes, like you said, that that dual diagnosis piece, the mental health piece, that can be, you know, depression, bipolar disorder. It could be an anxiety, someone who's just really, really, really wound up, or it can be a social anxiety, panic disorder. Maybe there's trauma in someone's life that they don't really understand that it's really a trauma or someone doesn't know about happened to their friend, and but they're really struggling with something. Or maybe some obsessive compulsive type traits that are really hard to manage that maybe the medication kind of just calms them down a little bit. I really like what you're also saying too. Sometimes these paths into an addiction are very insidious. We we don't recognize it. it. Can you know? I have kids who've done multiple sports and they've had multiple surgeries. That's just part of the part mm-hmm. of being an athlete. But they're also prescribed medications at times innocently, and and if used properly, it can be very helpful. But if not monitored, they can be a really insidious path, can't they? Into something that kind of gets a hold of and grabs the kids. And really makes it difficult to get out of that piece. Yeah. So that's, I I think there's two messages there. One is my wish when I present to young people is that they're abstinent from substances. They don't try or use anything until their brain is fully developed. Yeah. But I know that that's probably not realistic. You know, in communities, a lot of adults think that experimentation is a rite of passage. So the goal is really to get them to think about their why. Am I using something to be able to go to the party feeling comfortable in my own skin? Did I think that this was a choice, but now I'm kind of leaning into a space where I feel like I need to use this because the sooner you navigate to resources, the better off you are. But then on the athlete side, I've actually created national curriculum for the National Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. That wasn't really in my bio, but you know, we talk about the fact that do student athletes, coaches, family members, do they know that you can become addicted or dependent in, on opioids in five days or less? Do we know that there might be depression that comes with the break in routine? Is this career ending? I'm not training and practicing. And so building safety nets around student athletes is a huge thing. You know, before the pandemic and then we're reemerging in this space again, we have athletic awareness games. We have a decal. We have a logo really built on co-occurring disorders awareness. The field announcements are all about this relationship because athletics is a place where communities come together. Student athletes feel like they're directly impacted. They're now spreading the word. You know, they have awareness games, as you know, if you have young people who are student athletes around everything, right? You know, rare diseases, breast cancer, co-occurring disorders is truly the largest public health emergency that the demographic that are directly impacted have never really heard of. So every time they have a game and then information trickles into the community, we get the chance to change outcomes. Man, you've got such a great message here. I love your passion around this. I, I love the idea too of primary prevention. We're so good at being reactive rather than, you know, proactive in some things. And I love what you're doing here. I mean, it's always great to be able to respond to and help those that are struggling and we catch it and we get to help them through the secondary and tertiary prevention, you know, strategies. And that's critical. But this primary prevention focus allows us to get out in front of it ahead of time. Yes. To alleviate any entry into it. And I love, you know, oftentimes we get to ask, why does someone use, you know, rather than saying what's wrong with you for using, mm-hmm. or we get to say, what happened to you? Yes. And that question allows a broader kind of thing, a little more humane and allows us greater entry into what happened that explains this. Right. And getting into, you know, and encouraging people to ask if, if you're going to think about using, what, what is your why? What are you doing? Right. And that doesn't get asked enough because in that lies intention, purpose, and an agency that people can have in their lives to make really critical choices early on 
that can so direct a necessary path and a path away from those things that can really get a grasp on them and bring them down. 100%. So even, you know, we are targeting high school students, but I am repeatedly asked to bring the programming down to middle school and even to elementary school. Like we have, you know, people talk about social emotional learning. I mean, we created a, a, a thing called what's important to me. And it really is a way for young people to begin to take their thoughts and feelings turn them into words. Like, you know, if you're a, somebody who's always sitting out of the, you know, outside the dean's office or the assistant yeah. principal who's the disciplinarian, and they're like, you know, what are you doing again? And you can really start talking about what's going on, you know, what's yeah. happening in your life. These are ways that we can kind of change the outcomes out of the gate. But it's funny, you know, everybody's always interested in how we've gone from prevention all the way to through, through to recovery. So think about kind of how this lays out. You're talking about co-occurring disorders in a prevention lens with a thousand young people, but you're also telling them what this is, where the treatment model failed, and what kind of treatment we need. Now, there's a certain percentage that are recognizing themselves, their loved ones in that story. Now they want to know how they're going to get connected to the resources that work when I'm talking about a system that continued to fail us. So I live in Westchester County, New York. I always say that in my tragedy, I happen to live in a place in the nation that really took this on, our Department of Community Mental Health, our county executive, and we created a co-occurring system of care committee. We started working within the mid-Hudson region of New York on how our providers, our hospitals, our agencies could actually develop better models of care. We started working with Dr. Ken Minkoff, the international systems change expert, who said, you know, I've never really spoken to a parent that understands this the way that you do. I'm like, I'm going to hitch my cart to this pony. It sounds really good. But then every time we solved something, the next thing happened. And so then it was, well, now our, our agencies are getting better at integrating their services. But if I'm a clinician and I have a young person sitting in front of me that has co-occurring disorders, what am I doing to actually provide treatment? Mm -hmm. So during the pandemic, I had heard Dr. Paula Riggs out of the University of Colorado present on marijuana use disorder. She had developed an evidence-based treatment modality, once a week therapy that integrates mental health and substance use. So we got funded during the pandemic and we virtually brought Dr. Riggs in and we've now completed our third round of training and we have our third certification cohort on delivering Encompass. So when young people in Westchester hear me speak, and now they need resources, there are providers and clinicians who take people with Medicaid, private commercial insurance, no insurance, underinsured, private pay, bilingual clinicians, LGBTQIA plus trained clinicians, trauma-informed. And so we are within our own little sphere developing that piece. But then the next thing happened. Well, the parents, you know, like me, what was I told? What was my husband told? We were told when he got out of a rehabilitation program, write a contract, kick him out if he's not abstinent, very punitive. Well, we really want to kind of shift that as well. So we found our way to craft in Bob Myers, community reinforcement and family training rooted in those same motivational interviewing and empowering techniques that give family members kind of more of a a way to navigate and celebrate the small Mm -hmm. victories. You know, harm reduction is, is not something that's lost on our young people. It's not like you turn the light switch on and off and everybody's good. It's a process. And so we just kept adding on the components that kind of built the system that we envisioned. 
You know, when you're talking about this in, in this kind of broad perspective, we know that there, we talked about this at the beginning of the show, you actually, you updated a very unfortunate statistic that 18 million Americans right now are meeting the criteria for COD. And as I mentioned earlier, about 70% of youth have co-occurring disorder here. Every day in America, over almost 200 people are dying as a result of drug overdose. And, and your research showed that the treatment, there are a lot of treatment programs out there. If you just type in, you know, dual diagnosis or you type in, you know, alcohol treatment, there's a ton of them that came up. I did it last night just to get a sense of it. And there are a number of them, but you found in your research that not many of them are integrating this comprehensive right. service that you're talking about. I love the story, actually. I, I was reading a little bit in your site where in an effort back in 2015 to create a kind of a, a valid, efficacious approach, you guys kind of created a roundtable with the mm -hmm. government and healthcare and private sector. And you were looking to create a white paper to address the needs and best treatments. And you consulted with Dr. Minnikoff that you mentioned before, is a board certified psychiatrist and professor at Harvard and just a real specialty in this area. And, and he basically he had talked and shared with you about his comprehensive, continuous, integrated system of care. And mm -hmm. He was stating that, you know, you didn't necessarily need to create a white paper on COD. You just need to put the protocols that are out there already that are successful in place and use them. In fact, that's when I believe he connected you with the Department of Health in Orange County, New York. Yep. And things, and then the other programs you're talking about in Colorado, all of these things are out there, but they weren't being integrated, were they? And that had to be so right. frustrating. Well, I mean, for me to find out that that SAMHSA wrote a TIP42 book on the best practices for co-occurring disorders. It was written in 2005. It was updated in 2020. Harris died in 2013. That if people were using that mm -hmm. guide, it's the gold standard. Young yes. people like Harris would still be alive. I mean, that to me, I guess, was my true call to action. You know, my, my legal skills, you know, my, my community involvement. I just felt like if anybody could beat the drum and, and be relentless in my pursuit of collaboration, it would be me. Yeah. And I will say Westchester County brought Dr. Minkoff in many years before me. You know, Commissioner Orth will say, you know, what's the difference now? The difference is that everybody is, I think, more ready for it. You know, the pump yes. was really primed, you know, looking at the overdose and suicide numbers. But having a mom at the table who really was committed to the cause, who, you know, continues to advocate. You know, I sit on the New York State Opioid Settlement Fund Advisory Board. You know, there, there have definitely been spaces where I wanted to be more than just the parent whose child died by overdose. For me, it was very clear that there was more that we could do than just share our stories, that there were yeah. systemic things that needed to be lifted and done to make the system a better place. You know, in New York, we have a siloed Office of Mental Health and Office of Addiction Services and Supports. We are working really hard to create a single agency because as much as we're doing the work, it's very hard when there are separate billing streams, you know, separate assessment forms, separate, you know, practices. And so we really are looking to streamline that too. And I think, you know, it's a lot for an audience to take in, I think, because yeah. there are some people that may just be listening and thinking, I, I have a loved one with co-occurring disorders. What am I supposed to do? You know, it sounds really complicated. And I think it's the questions that you ask. I think that there are places and, and little tiny niches where you will find what you need, but it's really important to vet programs to not just, you know, go buy a shiny brochure that makes commitments to really understand if somebody needs residential treatment, what that looks like and what that means. How many times a week am I seeing an individual therapist? What kind of assessments are there going to be? Because there are two 
non-evidence-based schools of thought that we didn't really understand. And one is first sequential treatment. So I'm not going to really tell you what's going on with your mental health until we get your substance right. use in place. Well, you know, for us, I, I was writing 10 single space pages on Harris's mental health diagnoses from the time he was little. There was no question that these were playing off of each other. Absolutely. So that was never going to work because if you only focused on the substances and not the mental health piece, he would say, you know, I'm coming out of a program. I don't have the skills to manage my life. I'm just going to go back to what I know. Yeah. Then you have simultaneous treatment. So that means, okay, I only deal with mental health. So I'm going to send you somewhere else to deal with your substance use. So now you're going to two separate places. So to put this in real life terms, when Harris came out of that first residential treatment program, when he was a senior in high school, I was a stay-at-home mom. I was taking him to the intensive outpatient program, the 12-step meeting, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, and the gym. Mm. Recurrence in use in under two weeks. He was hearing different things from different people. Things were being validated. We take our most complicated people and we tell them that we have to go so many different places to get this right. And then you roll it back to a program like Encompass, which is a once a week individual therapy. And we're getting better results with that than all the bells and whistles and layers right. that we had to deal with for Harris. Right. You're emphasizing so importantly here that, you know, when substance misuse or addiction, mental health disorders are addressed simultaneously, the individual has the best chance to sustain long-term recovery. And the prevention model that you guys are working off of is so key. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig-time make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com slash BHT. That's hellotriad.com slash BHT. And then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. That's app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit about your project now. We're talking about other inpatient programs yeah. and outpatient programs. Let's talk about yours. How is the Harris Project reaching young people and the things that you're doing? So we're a convener on the systems and the treatment piece. So a lot of that funding comes through to us and we're really, you know, collaborating with all the providers. On the prevention side, literally as a former PTA president who used to bring in all of the programs, I thought, what am I going to give young people that will truly educate and empower them? So if you hit the home run, you get a full presentation with me. You're learning all of the story and everything that's going on. CODA, co-occurring disorders awareness, highlighting those pathways to substance misuse and addiction, creating those young people who know how to navigate to resources sooner, who can help and support their friends. 
But we also wanted, you know, you might only get a little bit of touch time with me. Where can we create like a brand and a logo? So we used to have a ribbon, like everybody has a ribbon. And I presented it a community presentation in 2019 before our youth summit. Westchester County has a CODA youth summit. We've done it hybrid the past two years, 45 schools, more than 750 students, really talking about this. But we have our two-star logo. You know, because when you go in and it's quick, you know, you want to be able to explain a logo really quickly. This woman was like, don't get rid of the ribbon. You don't want to be another ribbon in the pile. You know, pull out something that is meaning. So Harris wrote a poem to my daughter. And the first line was my little star ever glowing. It was always on our Harris Project logo. I pulled it out and we ran with it. And so you think about two stars. It's sort of the duality of co-occurring disorders, mental health and substance use. Our hashtags, Coda Connect. So it's that benefit of, you know, building connections between friends, the duality again, and that linking to resources. So everything about what we promote is this vision that you aren't alone, that if you really understand this, you can get the help and support you need. But again, not in my bio, Westchester County put out their request for proposals for our local opioid settlement dollars. And we've been provisionally awarded with the Partnerships and Addiction and other coalitions and collaborators $600,000 plus to build out three curriculums. So three 40-minute sessions for high school students, a parent and guardian one-hour training in English and Spanish, and one hour for school personnel, coaches, youth faith leaders, and community youth organizations to really begin to create that opportunity to better understand what this is and the power of early connection and support. Yeah, I love these youth-driven efforts. You know, this primary prevention focus is, like we mentioned earlier, is key. And being able to lower the stigma that we can talk about it normally without any stigma around it to kind of through a psychosocial educational model discuss the complexities of this. It's it is it's it's complex and not always easily seen in the service, but I love the idea of increasing the awareness, the understanding, the early intervention. That increases the likelihood of getting help earlier, at least bringing it to a conversation level where things are not kept in secret or kept right. by, you know, oneself and we get a generation that is freed from stigma about talking about these things. I I also know that you include parents yes. with a coda. How do you do that? So we do parent presentations and programs. And so the goal is that, you know, typically parents are coming out to presentations when there's a tragedy in the community. Right. We try to kind of bring it from a different lens that this is sort of like the opportunity to get there before things go wrong. And so the parents get equally motivated. But I will say that when you do a school-based presentation, the win is when you present to the young people first. Because if you do a good job, they go home and tell their parents right. and guardians that they should come out and learn more about this. Right. Why? Because, you know, a lot of mental health professionals are treating young people and they don't really talk about the risks of self-medication and that right. impact. So, I mean, I've had young people through the years, you know, Stephanie, I, I've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. I've been seeing a mental health professional for five years. I'm getting ready to go to college. When was somebody going to tell me that these things were connected? You know, why is it that we're only approaching this after we've created this situation where I'm getting kicked out of college because of my use? Like, why aren't we rolling it back to the beginning? So I think that as this movement is building, 
on the proactive side, we do a lot in this space of don't post parties because, you know, the police are going to come and you're going to get into trouble. Well, how about don't host the party and serve alcohol because you don't know the door that you're opening for someone. Absolutely. You don't know if they're struggling with anxiety or depression and what that link is going to mean for them. It's a very different approach. The same way in this country, you know, we're very focused on fentanyl. And now fentanyl has led to the conversation around xylazine because, you know, it, there's always chasing what the supply is going to be. But to me, it's like, why aren't we looking at why the demand is so high? Why aren't we really talking about this before? You know, I've been involved with the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and I was on a Zoom, and they know what's coming after xylazine. And, you know, Narcan isn't effective with this, and fentanyl test strips don't work. So now we're, you know, we're getting xylazine test strips, and all of those things are critical. The goal is to keep people alive, particularly as they're trying to navigate to real good resources. But wow. If we could prevent this before it even starts, what a yes. home run. If our young people are feeling uncomfortable in their own skin and they're getting that help and support earlier, what could be better? Stephanie, let me ask you, you're getting down to, in, in order to address primary prevention, we get to say, what are some of the underlying causes mm -hmm. around why people use? And let's, let's, let's take out the sports injuries and the, you know, the medications that are prescribed and, and other things along those lines. But what at a relational level do you find underlies what you said earlier with an important stat that there were up to 25% of mm -hmm. teens, 13 to 18, with a diagnosable mental health and, and addictive disorder. 50% of all the cases of mental health disorders arise by the age of 14. What are you seeing being the underlying cause of substance use? People not wanting to have to feel, to feel some of the mental, psychological, emotional Because they're feeling uncomfortable. They're feeling stressed. Why? They're feeling pressure. Because, because for those where it's a brain disorder, their brain is firing a different way. And so you can, you can have a host of young people sitting in front of you and, you know, there can be certain stimuli in a household. You know, parents will often say, you know, did I cause this? Did I make it happen? You know, if you have a young person living in your house who is naturally resilient, who doesn't have an underlying mental health disorder, sure. your divorce, even domestic violence or walking to school and not feeling safe because there's gun violence, you may be able to rise above it. I think that there's a certain level that we are now being impacted across the board. But if you don't look at how all of those young people with existing mental health disorders or emerging mental health disorders don't understand how this can happen, that's the issue. You look at the posters behind me. You know, we created the first posters and the first awareness campaigns that really, you know, have a Venn diagram that shows you the overlap. Another thing I'll share is that we also teach our young people refusal skills. And a lot of times those refusal skills look like Tell them you're on an antibiotic. Tell them you have to get up early in the morning. And those kind of wear thin. We really work to empower our young people to be upfront. You know, I struggle with an anxiety disorder. This is a door I don't want to open. I'm not really, you know, judging at what you're doing. But for me, this is something that I don't want to do. My daughter was a senior in high school when Harris died. She was a week away from her early decision application to go to Syracuse University, which had just been named the number one party school in the country. She knew, having lived with Harris her whole life, my kids were best friends. This was a door she was never going to open. One night in the freshman dorm, you know, the lacrosse players lived there and somebody said, you know, Jensen, I have a, I have an uncle like you. And she's like, what do you mean? And he said, you know, in recovery, 
And she said, you know, oh, I'm not in recovery. This is a conscious decision. It's a door I don't want to open. And it led to so many deep conversations about why people were using, you know, I'm using because we lost a game. I'm using because we're celebrating that we won a game. I'm using because the coach benched me and I didn't understand why. I'm using because I'm away at school and I'm feeling really anxious or I'm depressed. And I think that if we acknowledge those feelings and we look at what young people do to cope and manage, that's how we change things. I think parents often and guardians often will look at their young people who may say that they're struggling with depression. And we're still in a space with the adults where they might say, you know, what do you have to be depressed about? You know, you have a roof over your head. I work a full time. You know, I have I'm dealing with everything. You just have to go to school not really validating that when your brain is not, you know, we lived in an intact family, suburban community, you know, to look at Harris, I think a lot of people thought, what does he have to be anxious about? He doesn't look like an anxious kid. And so I think that our young people are really prepared and which is why it's so rewarding for me to be with them. The work still ha- you know, takes place with the adults because they might be able to support a friend whose child is struggling but they still don't really understand how it's impacting their own children. I, I, I love what you're saying here, Stephanie, that there are at times conditions and traits that we are born with that are just part of our constitution and our makeup. And we get to address that, you know, like an anxiety disorder or maybe mm-hmm. a, a tendency for more kind of depressive experiences. They're also, like you're saying, adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs, you know, that yes. basically things happen in people's lives that are so traumatic and they don't recognize the, the trauma of it and the sequelae that's left after it that they are left to deal with and they are trying to manage as best they can. And maybe some are struggling with, you know, how to cope with some of the things that are just in front of them in life and all the changes that take place, high school, junior high, elementary, they are not easy times necessarily. Right. Sometimes they are, but not always. And so it's sometimes people's best way to try and manage and cope with the things that are struggling, the best things they know how to do. Look, it was traumatic for Harris to have a mental health disorder. He was a good looking, popular, social, athletic kid, you know, see in treatment for so long, but not feeling better. And people continuing to kind of blame him or think, you know, what are you doing wrong? And so there's trauma associated with that. You know, these are things that, that really have impact. I think that's a really important piece because oftentimes when people come out and say, hey, I need some help, they they try and help initially and they're pretty patient. And then when things seem to be a little resistant for whatever reason, then it's like blaming the victim. Well, because it's a choice. You know, people think, you know, you're choosing, just shake it off, come out with us, you'll be fine. Not really understanding that sometimes that's paralyzing. And then, you know, I don't know if you want to even get into this topic, but, you know, nationwide, the commercialization of marijuana, you know, in New York State, there really has not been a lot of um, prevention campaigns ahead of our commercialization. So, you know, vaping and edibles and the impact on our young people and psychosis. You know, the Harris's first substance that he used in, in middle school was marijuana. It really caused him to look like he was having psychotic breaks. You know, there's real challenges there. Absolutely. There are, you know, obviously a number of states that are legalizing this and we feel like we're free and excited and able to do this. What are you saying to states? that are saying, hey, it's free expression and free use. and It's not that big a thing. And it's a safe drug. How are you coming at that? So, I mean, Paula Riggs, who developed Encompass, is from Colorado. It has taken a very long time for the profit to actually been, be seen. It was, it's been in the red for quite some time. The profits that people were anticipating were not real. That's number one. Number two, I, I had encouraged New York State and other states to really to have slowed down. And unfortunately, 
a lot of the emphasis has been on, well, decriminalization is something that I believe in wholeheartedly, but the commercialization and the giving out of licenses, really problematic because in New York that went really slow. And so the undermarket is alive and well. Most convenience stores have edibles and things that are not regulated at all, which is, you know, really problematic. And there's not been any upfront money spent on prevention campaigns. So if we know that it's, you know, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25, there's sort of the under 21 that's not legal for you yet. You should be getting one level of campaign, but there really should also be campaigns for the transitional age youth age for that 21 to 25 on the impact on their their brains as well. Yeah, that's a great that's a great out loud reminder to you us. You know, you're counting uh, your profits, but you're not really looking at what you need to invest because if it's negatively impacting communities and our young people, there's a cost associated with that. You know, there's a cost in terms of, you know, productivity, in living your best life, in being a productive member of the community. But there's also a cost, you know, which we never quantify, which is I have a family member, a young person in my family who's struggling. I go to work every day. Am I giving my job 100% when I'm worried about my family member and loved ones? The number of people with co-occurring disorders who are incarcerated huge numbers. And so if we could really impact this from the positive standpoint, you can impact all of those spaces. I couldn't agree more. You know, Steph, we always love to have as kind of in closing again for today, just a hallmark story that might stand out to you of someone who benefited from all the work you're doing through the Harris Project. Do you have one? Sure. So fairly early on in the Encompass project, when we were still doing all the presentations via Zoom, I presented with with an addiction psychiatrist and I was, you know, the mom and I was sharing a bit virtually about what we were doing with Encompass and I was sharing Harris's story. As soon as I got off that webinar, my cell phone buzzed and it was a mom who said that her college age student was sitting next to her. And he was listening with half an ear until I started talking about Harris. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, I'm Harris. How can I get to that Encompass treatment program? Now, he had been in residential treatment. He had had a bad breakup. He had a recurrence in use over that Christmas break, and he was not doing well. In fact, they had pulled him out of college. Mm -hmm. And we navigated him immediately to an Encompass clinician. And I know because I have now met his mom, how well he's doing. And his clinician has actually become our Encompass wraparound coordinator because we got funding from the Westchester Community Foundation. And he's actually going to become a speaker as part of some of the outreach and prevention work that we're doing. So that is so good. It feels really good to know that once a week, individual therapy, relying on cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, contingency management is working in a way that all of those layers and all of that stuff was just not meeting his needs. What a great story. Thanks for sharing that with us. Whereas we wind down for today, I want to give you the floor here to talk about a press release that you received yesterday. It has some exciting news in it. Yes. So in 2021, we actually applied with the Department of Community Mental Health for Westchester County and some of our providers to receive a wraparound treatment award for evidence-based practices. And so 
we got a regional and national significance award for $2.7 million over five years to really lift our treatment protocol within Compass, to embed craft, the community reinforcement and family training piece, and to um, embed prevention a bit more into the work. So we are slowly but surely building a wraparound model of care. There are still several holes in it that we're working to plug, but this is really going to lift the project, create sustainability and growth. So we couldn't be more excited. Congratulations. I also know that you were a key architect in that and the application and are going to be pretty highly involved in the administration of those monies. You know, as we wind down for today, I'd love to have our listeners know about some resources. Where can they get in touch with you and also the Harris Project? Sure. So it's stephanie at theharrisproject.org, the easiest way to email me. I actually get texts from people all over the country. So my number is 914-980-6112. Our website is a little antiquated, but we are theharrisproject.org. If you really want to keep up with what's going on, we're very active on Instagram at theharrisprojectcod, on Twitter at theharrispro. I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Stephanie Marcasano. And so we're updating things all the time. I will say that if you're, you know, a community member out there and you'd like to kind of bring this to your community, I can give you a bit of information about what we've done with the Opioid Settlement Board here. There's monies flowing, you know, in every state and county and community in the nation, and you can work to build a system of care just like ours. Really good. Really, that's a good shout out to the communities that have a similar opportunity that can replicate the things that you're doing so nicely. And I know you're going to be helpful in just consulting with that. Well, Stephanie, I know your family and Harris worked diligently to address his COD, and I know that you truly believe the system failed him and you as a family, and I, I, I would agree with you. But I also know that the good news is that in the almost 10 years since Harris's death, you've worked diligently to impact and transform the system of care. And with your recent award, congratulations, it seems that you're going to be making taking this to a whole new next level. So congratulations on that, and we so appreciate having you with us today. Thanks for what you're doing in this field. Thank you. So nice to be with you today. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Stephanie and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So go check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT. Thanks again for being with us on the show. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.